Peace and blessings be upon you. Welcome to the Ta'lif Podcast, a space where we aim to provide content and connect our spiritual hearts with community, love, service, and prophetic wisdom. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Inna alhamdulillahi. Nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'gfiruhu wa nasta'hdi. وَنَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنْ شُرُورِ أَنفُسِنَا وَمِنْ سَيِّئَاتِ أَعْمَالِنَا فَمَنْ يَهْدِهِ اللَّهُ فَلَا مُضِلَّ لَهُ وَمَنْ يُضْلِلْ فَلَا هَادِيَ لَهُ وَأَشْهَدُ أَنْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهُ وَحْدَهُ لَا شَرِيكَ لَهُ وَأَشْهَدُ أَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا عَبْدُهُ وَرَسُولُهُ ثُمَّ أَمَّا بَعْدُ We've come to a section of the book in which we are discussing worship. So he begins ثم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إنك سألتني عن العبودية هي ثلاثة أشياء. He said then you ask me about worship. Worship consists of three things. But before going into what those three things are, I want to talk about the idea of worship and the term to worship something, because this is a term. that we have come to use very casually. A person might really like Steph Curry's basketball game and say, I worship Steph Curry. Or a person might like Raph Simmons' designs and they'll say, I worship Raph Simmons. Or a person might like uh, you know, uh, the way Ferrari engineers cars and they'll say, I worship Ferrari. But I don't really think that they worship any of those things. Or maybe they do. <laughs> right but it would be safe to assume that they are using hyperbole right trying to talk about their great affinity for this designer or this product or this genre of music or this artist or this style to worship something is something entirely different than having a great affinity for it it is the thing that you are unwilling to compromise. This is what it means to worship something, meaning I will not compromise this thing at any cost because I worship it. You know, one of my teachers, you know, Dr. Uh, Sherman Jackson, he was talking to us at the Island program. He was, and I'm, I've, I've probably mentioned this before in this space, but Whenever I think about worship, I always think about this example that he gave. He said that, yeah, I'm sure I mentioned this before. So if you've heard this before, indulge me, indulge me, right? He said that he was watching National Geographic and there were, there was a pride of lions assembling a group. I see my sister, she's thinking, I said a pride of lions. She said a group of lions, but I believe a group of lions is called a pride, right? There was a pride of lions and they were about to hunt some gazelles. This was somewhere on the African savanna. And they were kind of stalking these gazelles. And the gazelle that was lingering behind the pack, they attacked, right? And they, you know, devoured and consumed 
the gazelle. And then he said that he was watching National Geographic another time. And they were, you know, he watches National Geographic a lot. That is the moral of the story. No, they were covering uh, some Aboriginal tribe. And this tribe was about to go hunting. And he said that they had these very distinct rituals that they engaged before they went hunting. So you had to like, like, like go around the village and then you had to like bathe and then you couldn't like touch your wife. And then like there were all of these rituals and then they went hunting. And then he asked the group, he said, what was the difference between that pride of lions going hunting and that, that Aboriginal tribe going hunting? What was the difference? I just told you a story about a pride of lions that hunted a gazelle. And then I told you a story about an Aboriginal tribe that also went hunting for its food, for its sustenance. But they had two completely different approaches to hunting. What was the difference that you detect in that story? It's that human beings, and this is just a product of our consciousness. We live with this sense that our outcomes in life are impacted by supernatural forces. This is something human beings live with the sense that what happens to us is impacted by supernatural forces. Animals, conversely, do not have that sense, or at the very least, they do not evidence that sense. We're going hunting, we're going to use our instincts, we're going to track the gazelle, we will kill the gazelle, we will eat the gazelle. But human beings have this sense that no, 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 what happens to us is not the mere product of logistics or circumstance or probability. There are supernatural forces out there that inform our outcomes. This is why some people are superstitious. This is why we believe in luck. This is all of these things, superstition, a belief in luck, a belief in fate. These are all religious in nature. They might not be uh, extensions of formal religious practice, but anybody who's thinking that there are supernatural forces that impact my tangible outcomes, they're thinking in a religious mode. Are you guys still with me? They're thinking in a religious mode. Worship is always your attempt to entreat it is your attempt to appease, your attempt to serve those supernatural forces. You guys haven't, are you with me? That is what worship is. First, it's a recognition of those supernatural forces, right? And then it is an attempt to entreat, an attempt to appease, an attempt to serve those supernatural forces. Now in Islam, the greatest sin that any of us could be guilty of is shirk. Because our religion necessitates that you recognize God and only God as that supernatural force that can impact 
your outcomes. And when you identify that in anything else, this is a sin against God. That's like, you know what, I'm leaving. I just gave you the whole Islamic tradition. Somebody. No, that, that is really what our religion is. That we identify that supernatural force in the one true God. And we refuse to give what is due to that one true God to anybody else, to anything else, right? That is worship. Imam Ghazali says that worship, true sincere worship. Man, you just walking up on me, man. Just like, bismillah, man. Like you just came out the gym too. Just walking up on me, man. He said, sincerity in your worship consists of three things. The first thing, preserving the commands of God, right? This is the first sign of sincerity in worship is that if you understand that God has made something your obligation, you try as earnestly as possible to fulfill that commandment, right? right. This is the first sign of sincerity in your worship. And this is not altogether different than what we experience with anybody we love. If someone you love tells you, I need you to do this for me, and I need, not need, well, God doesn't need, right? But indulge me. If someone you love, um, someone you love, tells you, I need you to do this, and I need you to do this, and I need you to do this. An expression of your love for them is that you fulfill those obligations, that you fulfill those requirements, that you try as earnestly as possible to dedicate yourself to upholding what it is they have asked of you. And we must understand this about our worship of God. There are many ways to worship God. In fact, I would even venture to say there are an innumerable amount of ways to worship God. But the best ways to worship God are the ways that God has commanded you to worship him. Right? This is, um, how can I say this? You know, worship is a place that you get to exercise some of your creativity, but only after you fulfill the obligations that God has given you. So after you do what God has commanded of you, then there is space for you to ask your own heart, what does it incline toward for additional or extra worship? Maybe you enjoy spending time in nature. Maybe you enjoy doing community service. Maybe you enjoy uh, you know, forming camaraderie and sisterly bonds and brotherly bonds with other, you know, people of faith. Maybe you enjoy serving animals. Maybe you get to choose that. But first, the first obligation, do what God commanded of you. Do that first. It's almost like if you owe someone, you have to pay them what you owe first. Then you can give them a gift. See, if you owe me money and you say, hey, man, I was at uh, Salt, you know, the restaurant on North Avenue. 
I picked you up a burger and fries. I'm probably going to say, thank you. I love salt. But that money you owe me, do you have it? No, 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 no. I don't, I don't have the money I owe you, but this burger, take this as a consolation. Take this as consolation. No, that, that probably isn't going to sit well with the person to whom the money is owed. The same thing is true of our relationship with Allah. If we don't make the prayers that God commanded us to make, what difference does it make that we pray two hours in the middle of the night, bawling our eyes out, asking for God's forgiveness? I'm not saying that that prayer that you make in the middle of the night, bawling your eyes out, is of no value. <clears throat> I don't have the authority to say that. Maybe God has accepted that prayer. But it would be a greater indication of your devotion if you made the prayers that God commanded of you first. Worship God according to how God has commanded you to worship him. And after you do that, then you can follow the beat of your own heart. But give what you owe first. You know, the word deen in the Arabic language is very closely related to the word Dane. The word Dane in Arabic means debt. And the basic idea is that what God commands of you, this is kind of the, the minimum requirement for you to acquit yourself as a decent woman, a decent man, right? to offer to God wholeheartedly in a spirit of gratitude, this very basic set of obligations. Look, this is the minimum standard that is required for you to be a decent and upright man, a decent and upright woman. You know, a man came to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he's described in the Hadith as being min ahlil badiyah from the people of the, the outlying areas, right? The, the Aryaf, the rural areas. And he said straight up, there's something that I love about this man. He said straight up, you know, he was kind of like a reluctant, kind of interested uh, spiritual seeker. And he just asked the prophet, I'm straight up, yo, if I wanted to, you know, like kind of do this Islam thing, What's, the, what, what's the, 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 the minimum that I have to do? The prophet, peace be upon him, said, well, you have to bear witness that only God is worthy of worship and that I am the last and final messenger of God. You have to pray five times daily. You have to fast 30 days once a year in the month of Ramadan. You have to give some of your surplus wealth, not your income, right? This isn't tithes. You have to give some of your surplus wealth to the less fortunate every year. And once in your life, if physically and financially able, you have to make pilgrimage to Mecca in Dhul Hijjah in the month of uh, pilgrimage. The man said, listen to this, man. Check this out. I almost imagine him as somebody from like, you know, Chicago Lawn or West Inglewood. Yo, check this out. I'm not going to do any more than you said, and I'm not gonna do any less than you said. I'm a straight shooter. What you, that's it, that's it. 
right? You know, I, I remember um, uh, reading this book called Reveille for Radicals by Saul Alinsky. And he said, you know what prevents a lot of meaningful conversations from happening in professional and middle-class spaces? Everybody is circuitous. Everybody beats around the bush. Nobody engages in straight talk, right? In professional spaces, very middle-class spaces, everyone is, ah, well, you know. He said, when you get down to the grassroots in working-class communities, everybody speaks directly. Right? This is what is so endearing about this man to me. Hey, listen, I'm not going to do any more than you said. I mean, I have no interest in winter. I have no interest in fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. I have no interest in tahajjud. I have no interest in sadaqah. Right? I'm not interested in just what you said. That's all I'm going to do. Nothing more. But I give you my word. I will do nothing less than what you said. The prophet, peace be upon him, called people and said, say that again. The man said it again. If this man is true in what he says, he will inherit the kingdom of God. This is somebody going to heaven. So this is a sign of God's mercy, that even if you just fulfill that minimum standard, you never become super Muslim man, super Muslim woman. I'm just a regular old Muslim. Just a person I do, I, you know, if you're somebody that you're not striving for those spiritual heights, right? All of us have heard the story of Rabi'ah, Al-Adawiyah, the great woman of Allah who said in a couplet of poetry, oh God, if I worship you out of desire for heaven, then prevent me from going to heaven. Heavy. And if I worship you out of fear of going to hell, place me in hell. But only if I worship you because I love you, accept me. What if somebody is like, yo, I'm not, I'm not there yet, man. I'm not there. And they just straight up, why are you doing all of this? Well, because I don't want to go to hell. That's okay, man. Why are you doing this? Why just, I believe God told me to do it. I'm not the most spiritual person. I'm not, you know, I'm not like those great people we read about among the companions of the prophet, peace be upon him, and those, you know, amazing exemplars of faith. I'm just a regular person. But I do recognize the minimum requirement of what God asks of me. That's it. If you just recognize that, God will place you in heaven for eternity. That's it. God will place you in heaven for eternity. So Imam Ghazali, he starts there. Just, just do what is required of you. All of us know the famous Hadith Qudsi, the sacred tradition where God says, my servant, she does not draw near to me with anything more beloved to me than what I have made an obligation upon her, than what I have made an obligation upon him. This is saying, if you're thinking about how to get closer to Allah, you don't have to think that deeply. God has already told you, just do this, right? You might be thinking, no, I have to take this once in a lifetime trip to, you know, uh, Mount Kilimanjaro and I have to scale it. And then once I get to the top, I'm going to, people, my family has been instructed 
to give away all of my worldly possessions. And then I'm going to travel the world for 15 years as a mendicant and beg for my meals. And I'm going to do this in a spirit of devotion. And then when I return, I'm going to go and take up residence in an animal shelter and spend the last 15 years of my life feeding cats. This is what I offer to my Lord. Impressive. But you would get much more from God just making your five daily prayers, fasting in the month of Ramadan, giving some of your wealth every year, and trying to make hajj once in your life. And then if you want to still give all of your worldly possessions away, scale Mount Kilimanjaro, take up residence in an animal shelter, give away all of your worldly possessions, feed cats for 15 years, not having people. Bismillah. But you're not going to get close to God. You're not going to get closer to God doing any of that than you would just doing what God asks of you. Because in the example of this person that engaged in this very elaborate process, and it is impressive, and I don't want to take from the sincerity of somebody that has designed, you know, that kind of, uh, 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 you know, way of ascent to the creator. There still is no submission in it. You designed it. You curated it. And then you did it. But when God tells you what to do and you submit, this is worship. I'm doing what you told me to do, not what I want to do. Even if what I want is virtuous, I'm still doing what you want me to do. This is what makes it worship. And I trust that if I do what you ask of me, this will lead me to the spiritual ends that I'm seeking, the nearness to you that I'm seeking, the experience of transcendence that I want. I will get it if I do what you told me to. And I'm going to get it more effectively doing what you told me to than I could ever doing what I wanted to do. How many of us have heard people say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious? It's common. I realize most people that say that, their apprehensiveness about organized religion is about y'all. I don't like dealing with religious people. That's what they, it, they really mean. I'm faith, but religious community, I don't like dealing with that stuff. People get exploited, people get manipulated, people get abused, people get controlled. I don't believe in any of that. The first thing I think with uh, that is I think that's only one side of it. There is also beauty in brotherhood, beauty in sisterhood, beauty in being united in pursuit of our you know, spiritual goals. There's beauty in, you know, inspiring one another, encouraging one another. People that only know the negativity of being a part of a religious community, I really feel bad that their experience has been so one-sided. 
Now, some of being in a religious community, I ain't gonna lie, it is crazy. Muslims get on my nerves too. <laughs> Muslims get on my nerves too. But the juice is worth the squeeze. The beauty of being in a religious community, it's worth the, the, the test of being a religious community, right? The second thing I say to that is I say, okay, you're religious, but I mean, you're spiritual, but you're not religious. What, what does your spirituality look like? And the person usually offers something that I'm sure is an expression of sincerity and commitment, but is definitely an expression of their own creativity. Um, I like, you know, walking in nature. I like service projects. I like listening to classical music. I like, you know, sometimes I'm at my most spiritual when I'm, you know, uh, tasting cheese and drinking wine. These are all responses I've heard before, by the way. I'm not making any of this up, right? There's no submission in that. These are things that, you know, essentially they've devised. This is, this is kind of what spirituality looks like for me. Worship is submitting. This is what you're supposed to do. And this is when you're supposed to do it. And there will be a kind of um, elevation that will occur as the result of submitting to something larger than yourself. Something of your ego will have been minimized in that encounter. Because by submitting, I am acknowledging there's something bigger than me. There's something more important than me. Something more knowledgeable than me. The second thing Imam Ghazali mentions, Ooh, this is a big one. The second aspect of sincere worship is being pleased with the decree of God. Meaning, everything that happens to you. You accept it as, as um, decreed by God, ordained by God, destined by God. And by the way, I'm not just talking about the bad, even the good. I find that some people have a very difficult time accepting the blessing of God. I've talked to many people that say, you know, I just won't allow myself to be happy. I just won't allow my, you know, sometimes it's a kind of survivor's guilt. Sometimes it's, I don't know. But if God has decreed good for you, you should say thank you. Right? I was, um, I was joking with somebody about how Many of us now, we are very uncomfortable with the idea of privilege. And I get it. When privilege is seen as an extension of societal inequality, it functions as a, um, 
uh, kind of a guilt-inducing category. That's your privilege. Like, pri you have this privilege that's denied to other people. You should feel guilty about that. And I get it. If the term is being deployed in pursuit of greater equity, social justice, I'm all for it. But in essence, all of creation, all creatures enjoy different privileges. Some people are sighted and some people are blind. Some people are able-bodied and some people have special needs. Some people are tall, some people are short, right? The Arabs, they say, the Arabs, they say, in height, there is dignity. And in being of short stature, there's defeat, <laughs> right? Not always, but, right? Some people are tall, some people are short. Some people are physically of robust, you know, you know uh, build. Some people are more slight. Some people are, um, you know, um, uh, uh, talented when it comes to numbers. I'm not. There's some people, that's just a language that I do not speak. As soon as you start talking numbers, it's like, now words. Yes. I love language. But my mother, my mother is a scientist. I think this just engendered this dislike of everything that had a hard right or wrong answer. I just, if sophistry is not allowed, then I don't like it. <laughs> I'm just kidding, right? I don't like it, right? Some people, we all have different gifts. So in many ways, all of you enjoy certain privileges. Right now, as we sit in the security of Tet Leaf, Inshallah ta'ala, Amir will watch the door. You know what I'm saying? You know, in this air-conditioned room, there are people right now living without security, war-torn countries, in poverty, in deprivation, right? Right now, that's a certain privilege that you have. You have to accept even that of Allah. This is what God decreed for you. of Allah. And there is a test in it. Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran, It is God who raised some of you above others to test you in what he has given you. So everything that happens, whether you are on the favorable side, of the decree of God or the unfavorable side of the decree of God. This is God's decree. And you have to get to a place of accepting it as God's decree, right? Of course, it goes without saying that the same truth is applicable to those things that place us at a disadvantage. It was, it was the decree of God and it no doubt is a test. Wealth is a test, poverty is a test. Being in safe and insecurity is a test. Being without security is a test. Being fed and satiated is a test. Being hungry is a test. You know, in this regard, many scholars, they say, blessing with gratitude is the spiritual equivalent 
to difficulty with patience. They're the same. Spiritually, those two people have the same rank. A person that is truly grateful while in a favorable position has the same rank as a person that is truly patient in a difficult position. But both of them are the decree of God and you have to accept them as such. And the same thing is true of the future. Nothing bad will happen to you except what God has decreed for you. And nothing good will happen to you except for what God has decreed for you. The Prophet وسلم, was riding a camel. And behind him was Abdullah ibn Abbas. Right? There's four Abdullahs. There's many Abdullahs among the companions of the Prophet But four that have special significance when it comes to knowledge. Abdullah ibn Abbas, Abdullah ibn Omar, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, and there's one more. Abdullah who? Mihrab? Ibn Haram. Maybe he's a Sahabi or Radiallahu Anhum Jimmy'an. But there was actually only three, and I said four. Okay. Abdullah ibn Abbas, Abdullah ibn Omar, and Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. Right? So he was sitting with Abdullah ibn Abbas. And he said, now listen to the context of the statement. This is why the study of hadith is profound. He said, do you want me to tell you something? that if I told you, you would be at ease in your life. Meaning, I'm telling, what I'm about to tell you is something I intend to produce some ease. Like if you have an overactive, um, um, you know, um, uh, imagination, so that you're very anxious about bad things, that could happen to you. If you have a, uh, if you're a person that, you know, often feels saddled with grief over things that have happened to you, this should provide you with some ease. He said, know that your destiny has already been written. Your destiny has already been written. And if all of creation gathered together and they worked in concert all of the human beings and all of the spirits to benefit you with something that God had not decreed for you they would not be able to help you at all he said similarly if all of the people of the earth and all of the jinn, all of the spirits gathered together to hurt you in some way, to harm you in some way that God had not written for you, they would not be able to hurt you at all. 
So just be cool, right? This is why we accept the decree of God, right? Many of us are familiar with the biblical passage. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. This is truth. If God has not decreed that something is going to harm you, it's not going to harm you. Even if everybody intends to harm you, nothing will harm you. Nothing will touch you. And if God has decreed that something is not going to happen for you, it makes no difference how earnestly you try, how diligently and assiduously you apply yourself. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You know, um, grief and anxiety are two sides of the same coin. Grief is unresolved remorse over something that has happened. Something happened to me and I haven't really come to terms with the fact that this has happened to me. And anxiety is the opposite. It's concern that something bad is going to happen to me, right? It hasn't happened yet but I'm worried that something bad is going to happen to me. And they say the way out of this is accepting that what happened in the past and what's going to happen in the future is from the Qadr of God. It is from the divinely preordained destiny that God has attached to every human life, right? This does not mean that we are fatalistic. It doesn't mean that you don't try, right? It doesn't mean that you're like, you know, trying to get into med school and people say study for the MCAT. <laughs> oh, I believe in the color of Allah. I believe in the, the decree of God. I don't have to do any of that. <laughs> right? I told you guys a story about, I kid you not, man. One of the most deeply spiritual people I have ever met in all of my travels. We're in Yemen, we're studying Arabic. One of my roommates, he was Chinese and Pakistani, right? His father was Chinese and his mother was Desi. And he was an engineering student from Westminster in London. This had to be the most diligent Arabic student I have ever seen in all of my life. I mean, he only spoke in Arabic. He memorized all of the dialogues and like the language books that we use. I mean, he was incredible. And then there was another student. He was very lax concerning his studies. He never studied, right? But every time you saw him, he had a sibha, he had dhikr beads. And it's like his entire like regiment was just chilling. That's all you just, and one day I asked him, I said, I said, Echi, you know, we have a test tomorrow. Are you studying? He looked at me with complete conviction and he said, a week before a test, I just sent salawat on the Prophet. 
And the prophet will come to me in my dream and he will tell me the answers to the test. And he said this without a hint of irony. You know, you guys are laughing. He said this without a hint. This is what made it so chilly. It was like, he said this like he didn't smile. He said, <laughs> when I said, like, I, I was like a bit panicked. Like, you know, we got like an exam tomorrow. He looked at me like, silly man. <laughs> he said, the week before a test, I send salawat on the Prophet Rasulullah will come to me in my dream and give me the, the answers to the exam. And I was like, oh, <laughs> we took the exam the next day. My roommate, the engineer, of course. This brother failed miserably, had to repeat the unit. And I said to him, what happened to the Salawat plan? He said, the deficiency was in my sincerity. <laughs> what happened to the Salawat plan? What happened to the Salawat plan? I wasn't sincere enough. Right? This is someone that does not understand tawakkul. That's tawakkul. That's like, what are you doing? No, if you want a business to succeed, you have to apply yourself. If you want to become a professional of some sort, you have to undergo training. If you want to get married, you have to try to get married, right? If you want to raise good children, you have to be a good parent. It's a, no, we're not saying, but in all of your effort, you understand this is only going to be what God has decreed, right? This is, only, it, this is only going to be what God has decreed. And I accept that. And the same thing is true of things that have taken place in the past. It could even be things that were traumatic. God decreed those things. And I believe in the goodness of God. I don't deny that my experience was very, very difficult, but I also don't deny that those difficult experiences might play a part in shaping me, building me, forming me. Perhaps I learned things about my Lord in difficulty that I would have never learned in ease. You know, one of my teachers, we were sitting in front of the Quran and he said, I want you to think about Yusuf and I want you to think about Solomon. So I want you to think about Joseph and I want you to think about Solomon. He said, first, let's think about Solomon. He said, Solomon said to God, give me a dominion, right? You know, give me a kingdom, the like of which you have never given anyone before me. And God gave him, you know, riches unimaginable, right? It's mentioned in the Quran, that the jinn, the jinn used to build things for Solomon. I remember reading that as a young, you know, person considering converting to Islam. And I thought to myself, damn, that's gangster, man. You know what I mean? You got, you got the jinn on your payroll. Yeah, man, you know, 
You know, some, I mean, imagine somebody coming to your home, seeing some amazing piece of art, and they're like, did you get that at auction? No, no, no. The gin, they made it for me. Excuse me? <laughs> you know Yo, I like this piece. Did they sell this at Jason Home? Jason Home? No, no, RH. RH. The gin made that for me. You'd be like, yo, this is, this is, this is another level of wealth. This is another level, right? He said, think about what it meant for Solomon to praise God as the inheritor of all of that good fortune. It's amazing. It's amazing. And he said, all of us should feel no shame in wanting to know what it is like to praise God for blessing. Like sometimes I do think, would my gratitude be any different if I woke up with the wealth of Jeff Bezos? Would, I do, would that feel different? I do think that, would it feel I mean, I feel good when I wake up now, but would it feel any different to wake up like that, to wake up with that much? I don't know. It's okay for me to ask. Yeah, Allah, let me experience that. <laughs> Let me experience what it's like to wake up with, is, is the gratitude different? I don't know. He said, then I want you to think about Joseph, betrayed by his brothers, estranged from his father, thrown in a well and left for dead, sold into slavery. And Allah mentions it was a themen bachis for a for a, a small price, like, you know, this was Joseph, son of a prophet of God, sold into slavery for a few bucks, taken into someone's custody, and then sexually assaulted on multiple occasions. The last time he was sexually assaulted, placed in prison in spite of his known innocence, left to languish in prison. He serves the inmate population and they forget about him. Then he's called from prison to use his talent to save the society in which he was imprisoned wrongfully. He said, and he went through the entire story of Joseph. And he said, do you think their experience of praising Allah was the same? Solomon and Joseph. Suleiman and Yusuf. No. One is praising God from the top and one is praising God from the bottom. But why does God place both of their stories in the Quran? So that people at the top can know that they have a responsibility to praise God. And people at the bottom can know that they also have a responsibility to praise God. And that there are lessons at the top. You know, Suleiman had, those are some different lessons. When the jinn are building things for you, those are some different lessons. When you're cruising down Lakeshore Drive in some rare collectible car, that's, that's, that, there's a lesson in that. Alhamdulillah. 
And when you're barely able to make ends meet, and you also say, Alhamdulillah, there's a lesson in that too, right? So even those difficult places that you've been to and been through, those were blessings. I didn't mean to offend you, sister. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Right? Those were blessings. Those were blessings. But sometimes it's very hard to see the blessing in struggle. Very hard to see the blessing in difficulty. Right? The last thing he mentioned, Wait, I missed my place. No. <clears throat> It should be, but he messed it up. The third thing is abandoning being pleased with yourself for the sake of seeking the pleasure of God the exalted. You know, in this, I remember... sitting with one of our teachers. And when he talked about, he was talking about giving up being pleased with yourself. And this is, this is a little like Arabic nerdy. So like, if you're not into that, forgive me. But I think it makes a really good point, right? In the Arabic language, there is... Um, a, a noun form called ismul makan. And it literally means the place that some, the place where something happens. No, actually I'm doing something different. No, there's another noun form called ismul ala. Ismul ala, see Arabic is a very, um, it's a very, um, how can I say it? Formulaic. Hey, that's, that's exactly what I was looking for. Allahu Akbar. MashaAllah. It's a very formulaic language. So you have these trilateral roots. And within sarf, you do things to them. And they make certain nouns. And it's always like that. So the word fataha means to open something. The miftah is the key, you see, because it is the tool of opening. You hear that? Fataha, miftah, it's the key. The word la'inqa um, is to lick something, la'ik. The mil'aqa is a spoon, it's the tool you use for licking, right? The word haraba or harb is war. That little corner that we pray under is called a mihrab. It's not, it, not, it's not, it's not there. I see you looking for, he's like, Yo, I don't see what you're talking about. Like an imaginary thing, you know what I'm saying? Like when you come into the mosque and you see that little thing, that's called a mihrab. Literally the tool of war, the mihrab. Because in prayer, you're making war against yourself. You're making war against, you know, your undisciplined passions, 
your base desires. And then he went even further and he said, in order for you to be at peace with other people, you have to be at war with yourself. And the person at war with everybody else is usually at peace with himself. You see, for you to be at peace with everybody else, you have to be at war with yourself, right? And when you're at the person that is fighting everybody, arguing with everybody, quarreling with everybody, getting in disagreements with everybody, they hardly ever become introspective and say, this is happening because of me. This is happening. I have a problem with my temper. I have a problem with my entitled attitude. I have a problem with controlling my tongue. I have a problem. They never say that. You know why they're at war with everybody else? Because it's not my problem. It's their problem. See, they have the problem. They're disrespectful. They don't know how to talk to me. They don't know how to treat me. They're this. They're that at complete peace with herself. I'm fine. See, I'm good. It's just all these other people that have the problem. See, it's my kids. There's something wrong with them. It's my wife. See, something wrong with her. Me, I'm cool. Ain't nothing wrong with me. Ain't nothing wrong with me, right? One of our teachers, he would say, I know, man, I know, we gotta wrap up. But he would say, at the root of most of our problems, is this egotistical belief that we are all good. It's somebody else's problem. It's their problem, man. I'm cool. I haven't done nothing to anybody. I mean, like, I hear people, no, forget that. I hear myself say this. The minute there's some disagreement, some difference, what did I do? What? I mean, really, am I that bad? It's, it's, is, is there really a problem with me? What, what, what could I have done? SubhanAllah. I'm at peace with myself, but I'm at war with everybody else. He said here, you have to give up being pleased with yourself. And you have to embrace seeking God's pleasure. These are the three things that constitute sincere worship. The first thing, upholding what God has commanded of you. The second thing, being pleased with the decree of God. And the last thing, giving up being pleased with yourself and seeking the pleasure of God. إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصل الحق وتواصل الصبر سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون وسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين Thank you for tuning in. Please consider becoming a monthly sustainer by joining 1,000 Hearts of Ta'lif and committing to give $3 a day to keep this work coming to seekers, youth, and newcomers to Islam. Sign up today at www.ta'leefcollective.org forward slash donate. We hope you enjoyed the variety of sessions available and hope you benefit immensely. Allah bless you and Allah bless your loved ones.